Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Don't Butcher It, a podcast where I get real. So earlier last week, I wrote and published an essay on my tiny letter called To All the White Friends I've Had Before. I know what I probably look like to the people I wrote about. Ruthless might be a word for it. Mean, maybe hypocritical in some ways. And I wonder about it and mention it because it's only human to wonder what people are saying about you and thinking about you, so I'm not going to act like I don't care. But what's important for me to keep reminding myself and for others to keep in mind as they reflect on, read, or listen to this piece, especially if it's their first time, is that I wrote this piece with a specific intention in mind. What I wrote isn't about the people or a testament to who they are. It's about what their actions represented. It's about what my actions represented. We are all victims to societal shaping. That is, we are products of our society. The issue is we don't question ourselves enough And we do not call each other into productive conversations. A lot of us don't make ourselves open to productive conversations, so those who'd like to initiate one feel like they can't. What this essay is about is bigger than the friendships I had. It's about choice, how we choose our relationships, what we choose to ignore and what we choose to forgive, and what we choose to be complacent about. It's about listening to your instincts. And there's a lesson here about letting certain people into your life. You have to take yourself seriously enough to set boundaries with certain people and at the same time not take yourself too seriously so you can, you know, forgive yourself as well as other people if shit hits the fan. One of the people I wrote about wasn't happy with what I wrote, and I was talking to a family member about it, not my mom, but someone else, and they asked me why I wrote it. Like, why would you even write it in the first place? I was really upset when they asked that because, well, I'm a writer. (laughs) This is what I do. I write about my life in order to make sense of it. I write about my life in order to hold myself accountable. And I write about my life so I can reflect on how much I've grown. It's about reflection. And in a way, it's also about inspiring other people to do the same. But whatever. I don't expect anyone to understand that. That's just me. However, I do expect everyone to let me create my art. After all, all my art is, is a reflection of my reality. I want to make it clear that in this essay, I'm exploring whiteness, not the personality of these three people. And to define whiteness, well, there's actually not a really good definition. There's this podcast called Seen in Radio. The second season is called Seeing White, and it's hosted by Chenjirai Kumanyika and John Bewin, and it's all about uncovering where the notion of whiteness comes from. Their driving questions are, what does whiteness mean and what is whiteness for? From what I learned, science deems race biologically meaningless, but it is politically and socially real. The idea of slavery is also just so much bigger than the idea of race. In fact, it came before race. What race is, is a contextual invention created by a group of slave traders back in the mid-1400s. 
that codified an idea of black people and implicitly an idea of white people. So whiteness is about power and it revolves around power. So when white people are so attached to their whiteness, so much so that it makes them uncomfortable to talk about it or reflect on it or admit that an interpersonal conflict has been caused by it, they are upholding that belief system that, yes, unfortunately, we are socially conditioned to subscribe to, but even more so, they are unable to separate themselves from it, and they're not willing to. For any white American to think that they're exempt from an inherent attachment to their whiteness and inherent racism, you must be a god, because that is impossible. I'll spell out the logic. So for the United States, the first thing we've got to be clear on is that it is economically and subsequently socially and culturally built on systemic racism. When we abolished slavery, we did not abolish the system, we transformed it. After all, why would people in power abolish a system that is serving them well? Like any system, ours created beliefs, attitudes, and ideologies amongst its people that results in actions that uphold the system so it can continue to function. You have messages you absorb from the world around you as a child, messages that are planted in your brain and live there that you have to work through. People of color also perpetuate racism and whiteness. Queer people also perpetuate homophobia. The only difference is these ideas are internalized from the oppressor. Meanwhile, the oppressor is born into a world that teaches them to oppress. They're taught that it's normal, and they're taught ways to do it that are less obviously oppressive. They're actively and inactively taught. So no matter who you are, no matter how much you've read or studied, no matter how many people of color you've talked to or know, you are not exempt from the inevitability of being racist. I, Upasna, am not exempt. That is why I wanted to write this essay. White people have a responsibility to ask themselves how their whiteness shows up. They have a responsibility to zoom out and look at the bigger picture. We live within a system that creates subconscious attitudes and beliefs. So we have a responsibility to uproot those attitudes and beliefs. And white people have a responsibility to dismantle their whiteness. When a person of color calls you out on racism, not personality, but on racist attitudes you have exhibited... By denying their reality, you're further oppressing them. And for people of color, I ask that you also question your intentions when you call someone out on their racist shit. Is it for a bigger cause or for selfish or is it for selfish reasons? Regardless of the outcome or the intent, it's you that has to live with your own sense of integrity. The bottom line is we need to have enough humility to know that when we are being called in or called out and we're confused or hurt by it, it's okay to feel like shit, but it's also something that should be happening. Like, it's okay to feel bad, but, you know, it's necessary. It's not about us or whether we're good or bad people, but more so about being humble enough to know that the conversation is about something bigger than us. It takes a lot of strength and courage to get out of our comfort zone and fight against the belief that everything is okay and normal when our gut tells us something is wrong or that we could be doing better. When you find enough strength and courage, it means you're going to make a lot of people uncomfortable and you're most likely going to make a few enemies as well. I've been reflecting a lot on the writer who wrote this piece on Ivanka Trump for Vanity Fair. 
The name of the piece is Ivanka Trump Was My Best Friend, Now She's MAGA Royalty. The writer's name is Lysandra Orstrom. She didn't just write about the time Ivanka was upset her friend lent her a book about poor people. Direct quote from Ivanka, by the way. Why would you lend me a book about fucking poor people? Or the time she told the writer, in reference to the necklace around her neck with her name written in Arabic, how does your Jewish boyfriend feel when you're having sex and that necklace hits him in the face? How can you wear that thing? It just screams terrorist. She also wrote about how Ivanka did nice things like lending her apartment to her friend and setting up her friend on dates. So when I think about the purpose of that essay, it's not dissimilar to mine. It's an exploration of the intersection between friendship and the self. Friendship and the world we live in, what we believe in versus what we do, choosing a joint reality versus the reality that is your life and the values you uphold and the vision you have for yourself. It's about how there comes a point in your life when a friendship isn't just a friendship anymore. Your choices, including who you choose to be around, are a reflection of who you are. I flirted with casual white supremacy, even after I began actively fighting against it. That's something I have to live with. I want to remind everyone, especially those who've been called to dismantle white supremacy, those who are non-black, once you say out loud that you stand for and against something, there is no going back. With that in mind, here is my piece to all the white friends I've had before. Ashley, I remember being excited about you. I'd tell people, oh yeah, this girl and I found out we were sleeping with the same guy, or, well, she was dating him exclusively and I was sleeping with him if we're going to get technical, but we both found out about each other at the bar while he was there and decided to be friends instead. How cool is that? After we realized that we were with the same guy, you said, let's not be those girls, and I said, right, we're not those girls. But deep down, maybe we were those girls. We were BFFs with our internalized misogyny. In fact, most of the fun we had revolved around men. Going out and looking nice to pick up men, sitting in your dorm room talking about men, planning a party just to be around men. First, it was the one who played football who you texted me paragraphs about. Even though I thought it was odd, he responded with one word to most of your texts. Then it was the one who gave you a hickey on your right boob at some point and then blew up on you for not wanting to date him. Then it was the one you'd been texting for a handful of months, starting when he was studying abroad and obviously deeply dissatisfied with his long-distance and long-term relationship. Of course, there was the one you met in Australia, too, who'd given you empty promises of visiting right before he initiated FaceTime sex. You cried about him the most. For me, it was the one who taught me how to skateboard at 3 p.m. on a Sunday, who, afterwards, invited me to the bar with his friends. We drank until 11 p.m., and it was like that for a couple months, drinking all day or whenever there was free time, just to see him. Throughout it all, you and I had each other. We had each other to fall back on when we were inevitably hurt by the same person who hurt us before. We bounced back together when we got a confidence boost. We expended what was left of our self-esteem on shitty, emotionally underdeveloped relationships with men together. We laughed, complained, investigated, ranted, and cried. You never let me feel shame for the way I was when it came to men. 
But then there was the shopping trip, where you stood in front of the mirror and tried on a dress and called yourself obese. I remember not thinking about how I was wrapping my arms around myself as I waited for you outside the dressing room. One second I was listening to you wail, the next second I was squeezing myself and telling myself to calm down. I was a size 8, you were a size 4. I never thought about it until that second. Did you think I was fat? Did I care that you thought I was fat? Why was being thought of as fat bad? I didn't know how to calm you down or make you feel better. I was too busy stopping my own mind from going to dangerous places. Then there was the time when we were driving back to Chicago after our road trip, and you told me that casting a black girl in the live-action The Little Mermaid wasn't right. Little redhead girls couldn't get their representation, you said. It's a Dutch fairy tale, you said. I wish I asked you if you were this upset when Emma Watson, a British actress, was cast in the role of the French character Belle in Beauty and the Beast. We argued for an hour. I had to explain white supremacy. We had another friend with us, the girl driving the car. She told me only months before that she wasn't attracted to men of color. She said she wanted babies with blue eyes and blonde hair, and she had to mediate our conversation in the car that day. Those were some of the big things, then there were the little things. Only hanging out with other white people, only going to bars in Wrigleyville, where it felt like we were only hanging out with people who dressed the same and used the R word and argued about sports. Where we only talked about white men, where we were only crushing on white men. It's like my brain had progressed, but I had let my reality regress. One night, a girl I used to be close with freshman year of college came up to me at a bar. I had walked in with you and our Aryan race sympathizing friend. The old friend whispered to me, I didn't think you'd be friends with girls like that. Sarah, you're harder to think about because I still love you in a way and I did indeed ghost you. I wrote about the detriments of ghosting in a piece just earlier this year and yet look at me. You and I not only had fun together, but we got deep together. We were comfortable together. No topic was off-limits, and maybe that was the problem. I found it strange and ethically incredible that you slept with three men you met on Tinder three days in a row the week of March 15, 2020. That week was the most scary, heavy, life-changing week for all of us. I found it strange that you thought you were exempt from getting an infectious disease because you're a spiritually heightened person. I found it devastating that you didn't even think about being asymptomatic or the fact that the black community is facing the most amount of COVID-related deaths. For someone who loves sleeping with black men, it felt like something you should care about. I wanted to tell you these things, but someone said a fraction of it before I could. You sent the screenshot to me. It's none of her business, you said. She didn't have to say all of that. You know, maybe it's none of my business either, I thought. But then I began to zoom out. I saw us beyond our late-night drives, FaceTime sleepovers, and get-ready-with-me's. How are you supposed to feel about your white friend who only sleeps with men of color? How are you supposed to just watch your white friend actively and exclusively seek out only men of color? Wait, maybe that's a lie. There was that one guy who was white who you said looked like the guy I was in love with. That wasn't a race thing, obviously. That was just fucked up. How are you supposed to be friends with someone who does not care about the devastating effects of a global pandemic? I was disgusted with it all. When I failed to express anything to you, I failed myself. I should have said something about how I felt. 
I just didn't know how. It felt burdensome to think about talking about all of this with you. I guess that makes me a liar, and that makes you white. Jane, you were supposed to be my maid of honor. Like, objectively, you were the best choice. Think about it. Two friends meet studying abroad in France, they maintain their friendship long distance for over a decade, and then they're each other's maids of honor. You came to my college graduation as a surprise, so you clearly loved me a lot. But now I don't think you really loved me or even knew me. The person I was in France was the person I was in France. I was focused on fun, learning, and experience. I had the privilege of getting to be someone else and hiding parts of myself that weren't relevant to the mission of my study abroad adventure. Apparently, I could take an unashamed break from the fight against systemic racism and I could be indifferent to white supremacy for a little bit. You did not know the person I was before those five months abroad and the person I returned to being and nurturing when I came back to the U.S., You were exempt from watching me argue with conservatives in class, organizing protests, being mind-blown over Baldwin, crying over something racist someone said to me, all amongst other things. We never had to talk about those important things because we both have the privilege of being able to not have to talk about those things. In a way, the person you were in France was the person you were in France. You were someone else before and you returned to being her after. I did not see you clearly amongst all the firsts we had together, like going to Morocco, getting into the VIP section of a club, trying escargot for 10 euros. Maybe if we had met when we went to the same school, we wouldn't even be friends. There were flashes of you being you. For instance, that time a French dude said he didn't want to talk to you because Americans are Trump supporters. You said he looked you up and down as he spat the words out. Instead of doing what most people vehemently against a fear-mongering bigot would do, say, OMG, no, I hate that guy. Vive la France, by the way. You got upset and told me about it. Or that time my family invited you to stay in New York for the weekend last summer and we got into an argument over Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. You sat there and gave validity to the idea of voting for Trump and when I pointed out your privilege, you brushed me off. I was having the same argument I'd had with white men in political science class with a girl who claimed to be one of my closest friends. And then there was the other day when I asked you if you voted for Trump and you said no, and frankly, it's none of your business. You're right. It isn't any of my business, I said, but I refuse to have anyone in my life who voted for or supports him because it's a moral issue. It's about values. You passive-aggressively looked away and said, Okay. The 2020 election was about morals and values, just like 2016, I said. I don't want people in my life whose values don't align with mine. If friendship was based off of values and morals, no one would be friends, you said. I told you you were wrong, and I said I had to take my dog out to pee. I said goodbye and hung up. You were wrong, but also right in a way, because perhaps you meant to say, if friendship was based off of morals and values, we wouldn't be friends. We had fun, all of us, but throughout it all, I came face to face with your whiteness and my privilege. My privilege being my ability to sit through racism, discrimination, microaggressions, fetishization, and more, and continue to be a friend to each of you. 
While all of the aforementioned atrocities impact me, they do not impact me as a symptom of me being systemically oppressed. I say I have values, yet every step of the way, I quieted those values just for friendship. I say I stand for black liberation, but I watched you live your white lives and I let myself share a part of that privilege. I kept my mouth shut and I was complacent in my own oppression and subsequently everyone's. In a way, I am still complacent because you will inevitably hurt more people of color. If I had stepped up earlier, maybe there could be less exponential hurt. When I was younger, my mom would tell me that the world wasn't black and white. She said most of the difficult decisions we make, we make from a gray area. Our friendships were in that gray area. Not being your friend anymore was both easy and difficult in a way. It was easy because I could be true to myself again. It was difficult because I know a lot about your lives. I don't see our friendship as a mistake, but rather, like all important things in life, as a learning lesson. There is absolutely no way I could ever choose a relationship over myself. I'm someone that has to stand up for what I believe in. There is no way a friendship could be more important than fighting for what's right and holding yourself to your convictions. There's this episode of Code Switch I think about a lot. It's a podcast by NPR, and the episode is called What About Your Friends? During the episode, a study is shared. 75% of white Americans have entirely white social networks. They have the fewest cross-racial relationships. Meanwhile, kids who said they have no friends at all are disproportionately kids of color. Other than literally having no friends, there's a sense of isolation you feel when you're a person of color, and isolation I've felt my entire life. I'm not trying to say every person of color grew up friendless, but what I am saying is, I can't blame myself for gravitating towards your friendships. It's what younger me would have wanted. Friendships like ours could succeed if they operated in a vacuum, but the truth is they don't. As I'm getting older, I realize that my belief system is the one thing that keeps me grounded and close to myself. How can I sacrifice it for tequila shots and FaceTime sleepovers? My degree in economics would call this, the ending, an unintended consequence as the result of a trade-off. I traded off my values for our fun, which resulted in my hypocrisy. My self-awareness was the only thing that saved me. Sadly, you three are not the only ones whose whiteness got in the way of our friendship. I let my white roommate manipulate me into re-signing a lease with her while she sobbed over her future, caused by the stress of George Floyd's death and the pandemic. I let a girl in my master's program call me exotic and ethnic. I stayed with my ex-boyfriend after his best friend called me slumdog millionaire and told me he didn't find women of color attractive. My ex-boyfriend didn't say anything to him. You stood up for yourself, he said. Of course, I still have white friends. But the key difference is that we feel comfortable talking about whiteness. We know that to keep our relationships healthy in the context of the world we live in, we have to talk about it. We know we must listen to one another. And when I listen to them, I should not have to be listening to an opinion that contradicts marginalized people's access to basic human rights. Most importantly, my friends and I know the difference between impact and intent. We can lose ourselves to friendships just as easily as we can lose ourselves to romantic relationships. We get lost in the sauce. We get caught up in the fun. When we inevitably realize that's what happened, we feel guilty. 
we feel a bit of shame. We become resentful, we push away, and finally, we end things. In doing so, we hopefully return to ourselves. All right, that was my essay. Thank you to everyone who listened to this, who read the essay, who shared it, who said just so many nice things to me. It's not easy writing something like this. It's not easy having people think you're a bad person because you wrote something like this. So it just it just makes me happy to know that the impact is a lot bigger than I expected. So thank you. And this I just appreciate you. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening. And I'll catch you on the next episode.